the power is on. Things are being recorded. Um, let's pray. Dear Lord, we're grateful for your word and we're grateful for this time in it. We're, we're approaching something massive and uh, involved and we'd ask for your mercies. In your son's name, amen. Okay, we're uh, doing the unthinkable, which is Revelation in four weeks. The next four weeks you'll get a page like this, equivalent amount of text, which may be surprising to you because when you go through page after page of Revelation, it seems a lot longer than this. So in so four pages you get to look at a lot more text together, jump back and forth between things that are uh, beneficial to look at at the same time without flipping pages. Um, the book, uh, not because it was written this way, but because the schedule made it this way, is uh, tonight is sort of an introduction. It's a portion of the book that can be conceived of as an introduction. Um, next week is a section of the book that can conceive, be conceived of as the preface. What's going on before the integral scene, which is the third woe. So week three is the third woe, and then the victory the fourth week. Okay, So that's the rough outline of how we're approaching this. Now, if you've not been in Revelation before, or when you have, you just sort of wrote it off as, well, this is weird, and uh, I have no idea. And then you read a book by somebody who thinks they got a clue, like Evan, and it's still weird, um, and it's going to be weird. We'll give you that. But we're trying to have a, an approach to this, because we've shortened it up, the idea is to get the best, obvious, clear benefit out of it. So when there's spiritual benefit, teaching benefit, um, things that we can definitely say about the book, not something that came out of my vain imaginings, um, we'll try to make sure those things get across and so you know how far the book goes without um, having to accept necessarily the tidier explanations that try to come on. So we're not approaching this book from a particular uh, theological school. There's dispensationalism, there's postmillennialism, there's amillennialism, um, there's a variety of things. Um, my approach has been that the book of Revelation is read differently by some of great men of God who teach their churches very well. When they get to this book, it all goes out the window. They start to be goofy in their interpretive principles. They have an ex um, expectation for what the book is going to do, and they think they better get about doing it, even if the book didn't tell them to do it. Um, so I wanted to clear up some things uh, in approaching the text so that you'll know at least what I'm doing with it and what I would encourage you to consider doing with it. Um, but first, in terms of its placement in, in, in time, it's one of the last books included in the canon of, of the New Testament. Uh, there were arguments about it for a couple hundred years before 400-ish, and it finally made the list. People weren't sure that John the Apostle wrote it. They are still not sure that John the Apostle wrote it. Many scholars today think someone called John the Elder, somebody else wrote it. Um, do with that what you will. Most early comments and quotes of it, like by the uh, uh, historian Eusebius or, or um, 
uh, Irenaeus or others uh, all reference the book as being by John the Evangelist. So most of Christian history um, just sort of automatically considered. It's, it has John's name in it, but it doesn't tell you which John. All right? Um, but added to the canon later, and, well, you know, it's understandable why it might have struggled to get into the canon. Um, the date of the writing um, is an open question. Okay? Most early Christianity, this would be Eusebius as well as Irenaeus, argued or uh, declared that uh, John was in, on Patmos under an exile imposed by the Emperor Domitian. Uh, Domitian was a son of Vespasian who took over from Nero's misspent reign. So he's into the first century, 90s um, AD, and sometime in the 90s, supposedly, John was sent to Patmos. That's the early Christian. Now when I say early Christian, I'm saying second and third century, fourth century, not, not uh, contemporaneous, but uh, just a couple centuries later. So not, not bad for closeness. I think there's evidences for other dating possibles in the book. We'll cover those when we get to them, see if they hold water. Uh, but that's the predominant one. Exiled and then released from exile um, uh, by Nerva, uh, the subsequent uh, Caesar. Uh, and he was a very old man at that point. So, um, Seal. What are we, what are we, the, the, these things that we, oh, the structure of this, uh, it goes in a, I didn't rearrange the verses. They're all in order like they appear in your Bible. On the right-hand side are just some notes, a few references, cross-references, for your help. Um, a map, you'll notice the map. This is a bigger map. This map, um, the one on your sheet is the seven churches of Asia that the book is written to. You, if, you don't, if you can't look at that and go, oh, I know where that is. Where that is, this is... Uh, Europe. Uh, this is the Med. Italy, Greece, now Turkey, Asia Minor, Palestine, Jerusalem, uh, Babylon, uh, Spain's over there. America's way over there. And uh, this image comes right from here. Okay? So you have a little top of Crete at the bottom of your map, and then what's called the Panionium. Uh, the, the Ionian states, city-states on the west end of Asia Minor, and it's on a, a, a loop. The, the seven churches are on a... The book is written to all seven, and it goes in order of the loop that would be taken to deliver the book to all seven churches. Um, you can look at that at your leisure. I know those lines are really thin. I just picked them up and I showed them to a bunch of people whose eyesight, who knows? You just look and say, there's something tan down there. It looks like a map. Um, <clears throat> it says that at the title, <clears throat> The Apocalypsis of John the Apostle. <clears throat> and sometimes it's helpful. We call it in our Bible the Revelation. That's pretty much what apocalypse means. It means lifting the veil. And so John has had the veil lifted for him. He's able to see things and then make a revelation of those things to you. Uh, <clears throat> uh, 
and it doesn't mean, apocalypse does not mean the end of the world. Okay, people use it that way now, but apocalypse just means you're seeing things that you uh, um, are mysterious. Um, the things I want you to know going in interpretively is you're dealing with a book of visions and some prophetic, uh, some just him describing what he's seeing, uh, and some of those sites are prophetic and some of them are not. But you need to have an idea or a, a way of thinking about um, prophecy in the first place that would keep you from making bad mistakes. Now one of those things, I have a Bible here someplace, is the distinction um, between glory and hope. The In Romans 8, and I have the reference here for you to look at uh, at your own time. Um, verse 22, we know that the whole creation has been groaning and travail together until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we await for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So the basic distinction between glory and hope is if a prophecy has been given by Isaiah about the Christ coming, and then the Christ comes, we glory in the fulfillment of the prophecy. If it hasn't happened yet, it's still a prophecy, we just can't glory in it yet, we hope in it. Because we have not seen how it's going to be fulfilled. And this book, because most people think it's all prophecy about Russia and the end of the world and all the rest, they think that they need to um, um, constantly glorify or write stories, make movies even, of how it's going to happen. Because no one is content to just hope. So to the degree you see something in the Revelation, in the Apocalypse, being fulfilled, glory in that. If you see something that has transpired, you glory in that. That which has not transpired, however you divide up the book, and you might see some things haven't happened yet. So we hope in those, and we know that our ignorance, in some sense, needs to be maintained. Even the Apostle Paul did not know how to pray as he ought regarding this, the resurrection of the body, so the Spirit interceded for him. So just as an encouragement to know the difference between uh, coming up with a theory that it, you, any one of you can write a fiction that fulfills every aspect of this prophecy. You can, you can make it Tahiti, the Antichrist coming out of Tahiti, and you can, you can make it work because you can invent a future. But future inventions do not glorify God at all because anyone can do them. And when the Jews did it with the Christ coming the first time, they made mistakes and they didn't recognize the Christ. So keep that distinction between glory and hope. So if it's not fulfilled, don't try to write a story. Just accept the prophecy. Realize you won't know any more than the prophet did what's going on. When it happens, then you'll glory in God. But if you did see it happen, then you glory in God. The second uh, thing about a book like this, and this is true for any prophetic book, there's a symbolic gradient. Um, you have to be ready. To, I remember my brother teaching me one time that, that uh, to read the scripture naturally, not literally. If I go through the book of Revelation, I'm reading it literally. I am expecting 
grasshoppers the size of buses uh, with women's faces and uh, with stingers on their tail or something like that. I, I'm expecting that. I'm expecting a dragon to come down from heaven. That's a literal interpretation. A natural interpretation is you interpret the kind of image in terms of what kind of literature it's in. So if it's poetry, you, you understand it's got poetic diction. If, you, if, if it's a prophetic, a visionary thing, you expect it to be kind of wacky and, and dreamlike and not really concrete. And you don't put the demand on it. But when I say uh, symbolic gradient, means that some of the symbols that you would interpret naturally are closer to the literal and some are further from the literal. I'll give you an example. There is a um, there is a guy or a baby born in the book and uh, who rules the nations with an odd rod of iron and it seems like it's the Christ, right? We'll, we'll get to that, but it seems like it's the Christ. And Christ literally was a baby at one point with Herod trying to kill him. And that's what happens kind of in the book. A baby, Satan trying to kill him. Um, did I turn that off? Nope. Um, that's a close symbolic image. It's not exact. When we get to it, we'll see how it's not exact. But Jesus was a baby at one point. There's another place where there's a lamb with a mortal wound, and that's also Christ. Now Jesus is, has been identified as a, um, a lamb in the scriptures, but he never was one. Okay? Never. It won't be in glory, a lamb with its throat cut, wandering around heaven. We're not, we, we see it in the vision, but the gradient of symbol differs in the same book. And so you have to, when, you, when you're trying to interpret something, you need to know, is this, one, is it actually saying, two, is it literal, three, is it natural, is it what gradient, how close is it to the thing that, um, and that will come up a number of times. Um, the last thing that I, I want to look at, uh, and I've got to keep this brief because you say, Evan, I keep looking back at how much Bible there is, and you haven't talked about the Bible at all yet. So we'll, we'll deal with it. Someday. But, uh, um, the last thing is in, in, in interpretation, in a basic rule, is to always let the clear define the unclear. So you don't take a vague poetic passage out of Psalms that says X, define it literally and absolutely, and go reinterpret a clear teaching by Paul in Romans according to this vague thing that you're not quite sure it really meant that in the book of Psalms. You take the clear teaching of the prophet or the apostle, something he says, this is the way it is. God loves us. Or God is love. Or something like that. But clear. Told you what it was. And then you interpret all the things that are vague and difficult for you in light of the clear. The clear come home first, and then and you might still not be able to get, especially in a book like Revelation, and we won't get to all the symbols or understand what they all mean. It wasn't actually written to us. It was written to those seven churches in Asia. And they understood most of what he was talking about. He even says that a few times. It says, let the reader understand. 
we're not those readers. We're looking over their shoulder after 2,000 years with a lot of things forgotten. But we have to remember that we're, our lack of knowing what certain things are, again, accept that. Accept that that is going to occur to us and we're not going to be able to understand everything. So the best place for you to be is believe the clear parts. And if you come out of this study on Revelation, say, I got five things that are clear, and I'm fine with that. No more. You know, I don't think this, I don't think that, but I believe what I know is clear in the book. So, that, that last point is, um, lets us get into the actual text. And I'm going to skip reading a lot of the text, of course, because, again, it's 720. But right at the first verse, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants what must soon take place, and he made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is he who reads aloud the words of the prophecy. You're welcome. Um, and blessed are those who hear. Good for you guys. And who keep what is written therein, for the time is near. Now, most of our minds, for mine growing up, if you turn to the book of Revelation, the first thing is you said, I wonder what's going to happen at the end of the world. But it doesn't tell you that. The book is even about the end of the world. Apocalypse doesn't mean end of the world. Revelation doesn't mean end of the world. A vision doesn't mean the end of the world. Tradition doesn't make it the end about the end of the world. The clear thing that John is telling you is what must soon take place, the time is near. Whenever you think he wrote it, he would have written it between 69 and, and 96, somewhere in there, 92 AD. Sometime soon, in reference to that, the time was near. Now this doesn't go away. It's at the end of the book, too. I think... Uh, my other copy. I have all my cheating notes. Um, he says, I'm a f uh, angels talking to him. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brother and the prophets. With those who keep the words of this book, worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Oh. Verse 12, behold, I'm coming soon bringing my recompense to repay everyone for what he has done. And at the end of the book, verse 20, second to the last verse of the book, surely I am coming soon. So, God reveals in the first couple of verses that this book is about something that's going to happen shortly from when it was written. And at the end of the book, he reminds you that the book is about something that is going to shortly take place. Okay? It, and it's clear. It's not a symbolic passage. It's not giving us strange numbers to work out. It just says soon, near. Don't seal up the book. We know that the phrase, don't seal up the book, it comes out of Daniel. Um, Daniel is told, uh, I think I have the reference here, Daniel 12. Um, he tells you, tells Daniel, seal up the book of the prophecy, for the time is not yet. Okay? And in Daniel's case, it's about... 400 years. That's the length of time between the prophecy and the fulfillment. 
not real long compared to how long it's been since Daniel, how long it's been since John. So if you seal, if you, if you standard sealing procedure in heaven, if it's over 350 years, seal up the prophecy. We don't know this, but he told Daniel to seal because the time was not yet. It was about 400 years. He tells John, don't seal it up because it's, it's imminent. So if you go into this book, you first got to say, when was it written? To whom was it written? What was it written about? What is it trying to tell me? Because if I'm going to get anything out of this, if I'm going to glorify God, because you've got the option of just hoping in a prophecy that hasn't happened yet, which is good to do if it hasn't happened yet, or glorify God in a prophecy that has happened. So you're already given a hint that this book is about something that is already, part, at least part of it's already taken place. Because he said, it's time is soon, it's imminent. It's now. Now, one of the things that you're gonna, we're gonna keep going after or are noting, is that if you if you ever want to make a study of Revelation, you have to also make a study of certain other books of the Bible. Uh, obviously, Daniel not so closely, but probably the most uh, direct symbolic source book for the Revelation of John is the Book of Zechariah. Uses the same symbols in a big way, some of the kind of the key symbols, the lampstands, the olive trees, etc. And he seems to track with what Zechariah is doing and repeating it in some way in the book of Revelation. Ezekiel, uh, some of the, a little bit later in, in tonight's uh, section, um, we have uh, some images of some beasts in heaven who are very close to the beasts in Ezekiel, the cherubim in Ezekiel. So you need to do more reading uh, uh, in the Old Testament, those two books primarily. Uh, you also, if you want to study Revelation and you just heard from John the Apostle that the time was short, you might want to read a good history of the first and second century in the Mediterranean because that's when it was written and he was told that it's kind of happening soon. So you might, if you're looking for the fulfillments, you might want to look at reading your history. What the book does is it, it initially, uh, going down that first column, there are images that just get thrown out. John gets thrown out images that you go, oh yeah, I remember that happening, or I remember uh, that being said someplace else. That second paragraph, oh, I don't want to misskip this. At the end of the first paragraph, John to the seven churches who are in Asia, Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. That gets repeated about God's God identifier. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne, which is just, I'm not going to help you out here because I don't have a clue. But that keeps getting repeated in this first section of five chapters, the seven spirits of God. You say, I thought there was just the one spirit of God. Okay, I'm not telling you. I have no idea. It doesn't tell us. But there they are, showing up first. Uh, seven spirits who are before his throne. Now in that second paragraph, it steps right in. He does this a few times. The gospel message, remember you, if you've ever seen John be described, he's called John the Evangelist. And if you read the gospel of John, you get this great knowledge and commentary on the nature of Christ's work. 
you get the you know you get things like John three sixteen. That's because this guy thought the gospel. Second paragraph: To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and everyone will see him, everyone who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so. Amen. Did that anybody feel any kind of, I recognize, other than the gospel, you recognize Jesus died for my sins and created a kingdom of his people. Uh, but this coming with clouds, remember where that occurs? Let the record show that nobody raised their hand. Um, the people who listen around the nation, all, both of them, um, probably didn't raise their hands either. Um, it, it's, you get a mark, you get it in Matthew. Uh, the mark passage, uh, let's see, I have it written down someplace. Ah. It's in Christ's Olivet Discourse. It's in the hymn book, too. It's in the hymn book? Well, he comes with Christ descending. The musicians. Um, Mark 14. But he was silent and made no answer. Again the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. You go, oh, hmm. And it also happens in Matthew 24 um, with the Olivet Discourse where he talks about coming in the clouds of glory. And immediately the literalists say, because they're going, here, first paragraph, second paragraph, you're already, you're already, that hasn't happened. You and your, it's coming soon. This is so much a problem that C.S. Lewis, who I light a candle to every morning with my porridge, I go set a candle in front of his picture and light a candle to C.S. Lewis because, well, C.S. Lewis, he had an English accent was wrong. He was so wrong about this that he said Jesus was wrong. Okay? Because the things he said were going to happen in the first century didn't happen, according to C.S. Lewis. Lewis was wrong. He wasn't just blaspheming. He was wrong. He just didn't know what had happened. Now, when it says, coming with clouds of heaven, and it says they will look upon whom they have pierced, did that recall anybody to anything? That was out of uh, Zechariah. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of compassion and supplication, so that when they look upon him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him. As one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him, as one weeps over a firstborn. On that day, the morning in Jerusalem will be as great as the morning for Hadad Rimen in the plains of Megiddo. It gets a little weird because Hadad Rimen was a storm god for the uh, Syrian uh, people. Um, and the, the morning for Hadad Rimen um, on the plains of Megiddo, that's where you get the word Armageddon. The plain of Megiddo is Armageddon. And so out of Zechariah starts to come these references that you recognize, looking upon him whom they pierced and mourning for him, wailing for him, uh, again stepping into um, the idea of Armageddon, which we'll get to when we get to Armageddon. Um, with that, 
get back to our sheet here. He introduces his visionary time in verse 9. I, John, your brother, who share with you in Jesus the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance, was on the island called Patmos. And Patmos is on your sheet, just off the coast, right off the corner there. Small island there, highly Carnassus. Um, on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus, it doesn't actually say he was under persecution and was exiled. It just says he could have been on a mission trip on account of the word of God, but he may have been exiled. Um, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. I like the, the reality of this. He says, someone said behind him, and then, verse 12, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, it, it, you get this sense of, he's not just floating in some ephemera, uh, some gaseous moment. He's standing there going, what, who's talking? And turning around to look for who's talking. It roots it in an element of reality, not just dreamlike, images flashing in front of him. Um, when you decide how to handle um, the book, you have to figure out what kind of, for natural purposes, is it, you know, your, uh, something in your cerebral cortex flashing images at you that he's trying to write down blindly and figure out a storyline for it? Or is he standing there being shown something by God in front of him actually? Is he being shown the future actually? I mean, he's looking down on some event and the only way he can describe it is as, you know, scorpions the size of school buses. Uh, whatever the the thing he wants to do, or is he being shown a play of, of images that represent certain things? How, how, what's, he being, what's he seeing? Um, he sees seven golden lampstands. Now, I'm not a numerologist. Seven shows up a lot. The seven spirits of God, the seven lampstands, the seven stars, um, the seven seals, the seven trumpets, the seven thunders, the seven, it's always seven. Um, and no, the number of God is not seven. Somebody just made that up and told people, and people believe them. But the Bible doesn't say the number of God is seven, nor is the number of man six. So that six, six, six is like three times man. I don't, don't believe it. Uh, don't, don't quote. I heard Evan say that the number of the number of God is 48. You know, I'm, I'm not serious? Okay. Very possible the number of seven is being used with, with the lampstands and the, and the stars. It's direct, literal uh, connection to what it represents. It tells you, um, verse 20, as for the mystery of the seven stars, right at the bottom of the first column, which you saw in my right hand are the seven gold lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So the number seven has no symbolic distance from the number of things it represents. There are seven churches, and there were seven lampstands. 
Now the churches were not lampstands. The lampstand was a, a gradient different, but the number was accurate. And the stars, number of the stars were accurate. The stars may have been closer to the angelic uh, representative of the churches because each angel had a each church had an angel. We got some uh, some juvenile delinquents. So there is a uh, there is a, uh, this event that brings the the uh, introduction of who this is going to. This is like saying, "Dear so and so." And he says, this is what brought about the dear so-and-so, because over the next one, two, the next two chapters, it's addressing each of the churches that it's to. And back in the 1800s, a guy named C.I. Schofield um, ran across a verse that said, uh, I believe to Timothy, rightly dividing the word of truth. And somehow he thought the word dividing meant to divide things. So he went about disobeying the verse exquisitely that what he did with the verse was disobey the verse thinking he was obeying the verse he divided the Bible into ages and then interpreted the Bible in terms of the ages that he thought they represented C.I. Schofield wrote the first study Bible Schofield study Bible he was one of the first dispensationalists and dispensationalism became popular because of what he did dividing up the Word of God. It just means rightly handling the Bible. He wrongly handled the Bible by thinking he could just draw some lines and think it was obedience, that God wanted it, that done. Um, but that, um, uh, that belief applied to the next two chapters turned each of those churches into a church age that Schofield and others decided that the early church was the church of Ephesus. And of course, the people who are reading the thing that Schofield wrote are always Laodicea, the last one, and it was always a very powerful talk. But there's no evidence for this. There is a, there is a uh, uh, direction this letter is going to. It said it was to the seven churches. Seven churches had seven angels. Seven churches had seven lampstands. He then talks to each of the churches <coughs> very personally and very particularly about what they're up to and then, uh, and then steps into the vision, steps into the preface and then into the vision. Um, so we don't go with any kind of uh, outline form of these churches. They just are like Paul writing to the Corinthians, John is writing to the Laodiceans, um, and um, uh, not the Laodiceans, yeah, Laodiceans and Ephesians and so forth. Short letters correcting things that are wrong. Now the next two chapters I have on the side something that you need to take a look at as you have a chance to read it. With each of the each of the churches there's an introduction to the angel of the church. Remember there were seven stars that are the seven angels and those angels are being addressed. Now the word angel means messenger I don't know if you want to think that those messengers are the pastors. In other words, it's a letter to their pastors, they are their bishop, and then to the church, or whether that was, there's an angelic belonging to each uh, of, of each church. That it's the church in Moscow has an angelic representative that has 
to take responsibility somehow for what we are, we're up to. Um, take your pick, it doesn't tell you which, but it addresses each one to the angel and then it identifies the sender in some description of the Christ that appears to John there in the first chapter. He repeats one of the qualities. To him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven gold lampstands. It identifies the Christ when it addresses the angel in each case. Each of the churches ends with a promise if they conquer. To he who conquers, there at the end of Ephesians 1, verse 7, to him who conquers I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is of the paradise of God. Each one has a, each one has a, um, um, a promise in conquering. Now, one of the things you got to, you'll start getting stood on your head if you think this is a rebellious tract for how the Christians are going to get theirs and dominate the world. Because everything about the conquering, Caleb and I were talking about it beforehand, everything that's in the conquering is not in what we would want to have happen to us, and we would call it, we wouldn't call it conquering. But Jesus Christ looks at something different than, than the church winning all the stuff, all the power and all the stuff. Matter of fact, there of the seven churches, I was going to do... Uh, Consumer Reports grading, you know how you have the little circle, and it's half black if it's half bad, all black if it's really bad. There's, there's two completely black churches, there's two completely white churches, then there are three that are half and half. And the two ones that are get God's commendation, first off you have to say, hold it, first century, an apostle just down the road writing you letters has been your bishop in Ephesus for a while now, and you've got these kind of problems? You might want to thank God that it's not far worse here now. We, we, if we're keeping our stuff together and our, our Christian religion intact, uh, even with the apostles present, Christians were managing, managing to drive it into a wall. It was, it was very bad in two of the churches. And in each of those... Um, we have a chance, look at the conquering blessing that is sent to each, but in each of the descriptions of the church, there's enough presence for you to sum up. Um, you might not like my summations of the warnings that go on, like with Ephesus in chapter 2. I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear evil men, but have tested those who call themselves apostles but are not. That shows up a lot. People who call themselves something, but they aren't. And found them to be false. I know you're enduring patiently, bearing up for my name's sake. And you have not grown weary. Sounds like a pretty hot bunch. But I have this against you. You've abandoned the love you had at first. So what did he just describe? Because for us to know something, for us to know something about ourselves or to learn something from these churches like we would from Corinthians. If we, if we were to take something away from Corinthians or Galatians or something, knowing what the real problem was. Here was a church. What did it have? They're enduring. They work hard. They don't put up with wickedness. They don't put up with false apostles. Um, they endure patiently. They have not grown weary. I was summing it up and saying that there's a danger of being 
working hard at sustaining the Christian life, theologically, practically, that sets you at odds, first with the world, and then with the rest of the Christians. Because, I don't know if you know this, but other Christians don't do it the way you do it. Other Christians don't care about the same things you care about. And when sometimes Christians get together, they fight with each other. I don't know if you've heard about that, but they do. People who are really solid, one of the great times supposedly in English Christian history was the 1600s. Great men of God walking around the ground, writing long books, and shooting cannons at other Christians. Real cannons with real lead shot, shooting other Christians, not even Catholic ones, other Protestant ones. Things have got to be pretty bad. Because sometimes people are so right, they've become wrong because they lose the love they had at first. They don't remember that this is God's love is represented in all of this, and our love is how we obey the commandments. So in each of these, the second one, Smyrna, was one of the good churches. Philadelphia and Smyrna, if you want to cut to the chase, they're the ones that got a good report. They said that they slander of those who say that they're Jews and are not. That's what the false claim was with them. Um, with them, he encourages them to be faithful unto death. The devil is about to throw some of you into prison. You may be tested. Remember, this is happening soon. This is not happening in centuries from what John is saying. He's telling people he knows that are just across from Patmos on Asia Minor. He's going to send this letter, and some of you are going to get thrown into prison. For ten days you'll have tribulation. He who conquers shall not be hurt by the second death. So what are we, and it's smarter, the two good churches, you get a church that's being beat up and hanging on. Because they know, when, when you believe in God, you believe that God wins. This is not a up-in-the-air sort of thing. This is not a, see how it turns out. He's the Almighty. If you believe in the church, on the other hand, and how you're doing, you're willing to give away the store, or you're willing to fight really hard, you're willing to get depressed about how it's going, all sorts of things, because you don't believe in real power. And if you believe in real power, you can endure patiently to the end, to the end including dying. And a lot of Christians did. But it was a blessed thing, it was a conquering that the, the, we get the idea of the conquering has to do with, with faith because it talks about uh, it being an endurance unto death and John uses the same uh, idea talking about overcoming in 1 John. He who overcomes and the person who overcomes is the person who has faith. He wasn't hoping that you would win the debate with Caesar. That might be good to do, but overcoming could just die. Overcoming just meant I went to my death because I believed, because I don't fear him who could kill the body. I fear him who could cast both body and soul into hell. Pergamum. This has, I summed it up. Now, if you have a chance, read through it and see if you can sum up the kind of the attitude problem. These are people with an apostolic root 
person they knew, one of the nice apostles, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was their bishop, and they're coming up with these problems. Verse 13, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne... Oh, that's Pergamum. Was that Pergamum? Yes. Where Satan's throne is, oh, which is everybody likes to stop and drink that verse in, don't you? Satan's throne in Pergamum, kind of like Evan's throne of Odin down here with ravens. Well, it may have been something like that. Satan's throne. There was a big, there was a big altar, in, which is now in the museum in Berlin. They moved the whole thing. But it looks like a throne, uh, you know, two wings, and it's got the Gigantomachy uh, uh, inscriptions on it, and it was, it was just paganism. Uh, there was a big cult to Asclepius, who was the god of health, um, represented by a snake on a stick, which is kind of satany. But I think probably the best guess is Pergamum was the first place of Caesar worship. Okay? It established Caesar worship for the Roman Empire, and it grew out from Pergamum. So, if Satan has anything to do with Rome in the Roman Imperial time, it might be referring to that. But we don't know for certain. And you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my witness. We don't know who Antipas was. People in the 600s had come up with a saint who died in Pergamum named Antipas, but we don't really have any real evidence that he existed. So we know he existed here, but we don't know who he was. He says, this is the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice immorality. Now, some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. The Nicolaitans may have been followers of the deacon Nicholas in the book of Acts, one of the first deacons that were picked, like with Stephen. Uh, the early church seemed to think they were followers of this guy, that he kind of went off the rails a little bit. Um, basically, um, they hold fast to his name and don't deny the faith. But they put up with Christians sleeping around, um, eating food sacrificed to idols, practicing immorality, the teaching of the Nicolaitans, which also was immoral. They're putting up with things. This is the idea of you have a danger. There's no danger to being orthodox. I mean, there is a danger. Being orthodox is good. Being, um, uh, being loyal to the faith is good. But the danger that is in each one, whatever, wherever you are, sin lies close at hand. There's going to be a, an adjustment of it that makes us um, wrong to the point where our church is in danger because we don't, uh, we don't correct the temptation of the holy. There are holy things that tempt us. This was people that were holding to the, um, the name of Christ, didn't deny his faith, no matter how bad it got, and yet they were tolerating things. You'll see it when we moved to town here back in the 70s. There were some dear Christians in the Methodist church here with teaching Bible studies, etc. Some of you knew Fred Cole and some of those other people. Uh, all the while, the Methodist, you know, denomination was going through the, you know, the floor in terms of its liberalism. Until they were finally told they weren't welcome, basically. But they were loyal. Some, somehow people get loyal to the church, 
because it represents the faith they hold and the faith they believe and things are going on and I don't even know some maybe some Episcopalians or or others that have finally look up and they find themselves with a homosexual bishop and they go how did that happen you know what am I doing well because they were loyal they were dear Christians loyal to the faith and in their mind the faith meant their church institution and they stayed with it and there's a danger of not recognizing the wickedness. Thyatira, the next one, uh, in verse 18, <coughs> it's another um, a bad situation. Um, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess. Again, just like call themselves apostles but are not, call themselves Jews but are not. Jezebel calls herself a prophetess but isn't. Three of the churches are putting up with and running into trouble with people who are advertising a religious stand that they don't hold and it's fooling people. You know, after so how do we, we have an actual apostle over on that island writing us a letter. How come I'm falling for these false prophets and the like? But beguiling my servants to practice immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Now, there are some in Thyatira who don't hold to this. They have not strayed after what some call the deep things of Satan. That's in verse 24. He who conquers and who keeps my works to till the end, I will give him power over the nations. The church of Sardis. And again, these are these summations are things you could work out and come up with even a more exquisite and better one than I have. But answering how you could have dear Christians in a situation where they tolerate something grotesquely wicked. Maybe it's just the pastor is a bad man and they're not willing to say anything. The angel of the church in Sardis writes, I know your works. You have the name of being alive and you are dead. Awake and strengthen what remains and is on the point of death. For I have not found your works perfect in the sight of God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep that and repent. If you will not awake, I will come like a thief. And you will not know at what hour I will come upon you. That's not about the end of the world coming like a thief. That's like coming on Sardis like a thief. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis. People have not soiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who conquers shall be clad thus in white. Now what's going on there in Sardis? You have a name of being alive. You can just imagine some church, downtown Portland, or more like downtown Wenatchee, because this is where big churches end up in some mid-range town. Um, and it's called Alive. Or just... Alive church. I don't know. You have the name of being alive. We believe press. And when you, the danger of believing what people say. Jezebel stands there and says, I'm a prop. We don't know who she was. Named after the Jezebel of the Bible. Um, I'm a prophetess. And we're too polite to do anything about it. You know, we just, oh, okay. Or, yeah, I bet you are alive. Anybody who would name their church alive... I think just I think you could take it to the bank. They're not. You have to tell people. And that's the danger because 
When God is trying to do something in us, he's actually trying to do something in you that benefits the people around you in such a way that you're not really worried about whether they've been told, handed a copy of your resume, and said, you know, I'm a really nice guy. Oh, I hadn't noticed you were a really nice guy. Oh, I really love Jesus. Well, I hadn't noticed you really loved him. Actually, you know, if the thing is true in you, it's seen. The people that feel they have to tell somebody... I don't know if I should tell this story. Because I don't have any time. But uh, we had a guy one time who read through Pride and Prejudice and told all the girls in the house that he was just like Mr. Darcy. They hadn't realized that, and they were very grateful for the information. Because once they knew that he had the name of that, don't believe your press. Pergamum. Oh, Philadelphia, excuse me. I know your works. I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. He doesn't have any complaint about Philadelphia. He didn't have any complaint about Smyrna. But both of those were weak, every, by every measure, losers on the field of church growth and, and development. They didn't have a cool name of being alive. They didn't have active ministries of sexual immorality. But they get the, they get the credit from John. The church at Laodicea, the last one which everybody thinks it's the current age because it's always, the current age is always lukewarm in people's minds. I like this one because it's such a great image of, I, I know your works, you're not, this is verse 15 of chapter 3, I know your works, you're neither hot nor cold, would that you were hot or cold, so because you're lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew you out of my mouth. And this is because the tepidness of their lives was because of the earthly success of their lives. Financially, everything. They had funds and a budget for every program. They had staff for every program. Everything worked like a Swiss watch. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not knowing that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. And then he asks them to come after the things that are truly wealth. But we actually don't like those things that are truly wealth in Christ because they really, it really recommends, one, goodness, and we don't really have a lot of room for being good in our lives, and the pain that comes with being good of other people not liking you. And you really want to be liked, and you'd really like to be successful, and you really like your ministry to be well-funded. And then the famous verse happens that everybody thinks should be on a track someplace. Verse 20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Oh, hold it. That's not supposed to be here. Because he's knocking at the door of a church that is poor, already a church, wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. You don't know that. And I'm about to spit you out. But if I knock on the door and you open the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. So you got a choice that you're either going to have Christ spit you out of his mouth for your successful church circumstance and lack of anything else, or you're going to welcome Christ back in and he will dine with you. You either get spit out or he will dine with you. 
But it's not a verse about opening your heart to Jesus for some non-Christian. It's about opening your heart to Jesus to some Christian who's got a successful church. Now after this, and I'm going to have to, I'm going to wrap it up quickly, but I had to start late because we were trimming trees here. The last two chapters, it switches out of the introduction of who the letter is to. Um, and there is a um, introduction of a throne room scene, temple throne room scene. Um, it, it becomes more clear as you go through the book. There's more temple elements in this. Lampstands were in the temple. Um, the uh, the crystal sea is a, a temple accoutrement. Um, those things. And you got 24 elders surrounding the throne. We don't know who they are. They got throne. They got crowns. And then there are the the four beasts that are kind of cherubim, but not quite. Um, the cherubim here, if they are cherubim, may just be a different kind of cherubim. Each side of the throne were four living creatures, full of eyes in the front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, the fourth living creature like a flying eagle. That's out of Ezekiel. But each cherubim had four faces each, and each of the four faces was those four. So you know it's tracking with the same kind of imagery. And then the cherubim in Ezekiel have four wings. These have six wings, like the seraphim in Isaiah. I just think they're real things. I don't think they're symbols for anything. I just think they're kind of strange stuff that live in glory. But they sing various things to the glory of God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Like the seraphim do in Isaiah 6. Um, and then in chapter 5, the scene, this switches where the scene is. This is why it's all introduction. Who it's to. And then, and then John ends up standing in front of um, this throne and a circumstance arises at the beginning of chapter 5. I saw in the right hand of him who has, was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice. Now I don't know what's a strong angel. Does he have a really big gun? Or is he just ripped? That's a possibility. Or maybe he's just 12 foot tall. I don't know. But strong angel. Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I wept much that no one was found worthy to open the scroll. This is the introduction to the vision. The next, next week we'll be opening the scroll or opening this, each of the seals and going through those. But this is where the lamb shows up. The lamb that has a mortal wound was slain. Was, and I think the medieval paintings would always have its throats cut and a stream of blood coming out and the, the lamb standing there with a little cross. Um, I guess they just had to paint what they were told. But this is the interesting thing here. Verse 6. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. What, uh, 
what are these seven spirits? That's almost a quote from uh, uh, Zechariah, where he deals with the, um, let's see, do I have a chapter four of Zechariah? And I should have had it ready, given the time. Chapter four of Zechariah, verse two. Oh, chapter 4, verse 2. Um, he said to me, What do you see? And I said, I see, behold, a lampstand all of gold with a bowl on the top of it and seven lamps on it with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on the left. And I said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my lord? And the angel who talked with me answered, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my lord. And he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And then he goes on, but then um, uh, he, he clarifies in verse 10. These seven are the eyes of the Lord, which range through the whole earth. So he's, he's got the... Uh, um, uh, the same image, or the same wording that the seven of God go throughout the whole earth. There's an element of that in both Zechariah and, and Revelation. We'll get to a little later about the four horsemen because that also comes from Zechariah. But um, uh, just as an interesting point, we're not getting any information. We just know that it matters to the image that John is seeing that we know that God has seven spirits that patrol the earth uh, and that it is not seven because of seven churches, because it's seven in Zechariah as well. So it just might be the state of things, or it might be an idealized number. Um, the next thing that's of interest, uh, before we call a halt here, is in verse 8. Uh, when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp, and with golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. That comes up again a little bit later, but the idea that your prayers as incense being offered in a religious ceremony is quite of a nice one. You know, I, I don't know what you would do with it. I don't know what I would do with it myself. But it, it, it brings something. We all struggle with prayer issues and how do my prayers go to be with the Lord. And here they're being offered as incense uh, before the throne of God. They sing then the gospel again. Worthy art thou to take the scroll and to open its seals, for thou wast slain, and by thy blood did ransom men for God from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and hast made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on earth. Now there, it's a promise of reigning on earth that everyone likes who gets into the church militant sort of circumstance doesn't see that the way we conquer is different than the way they conquer. When Paul says our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, that's what this is. Our, our armor is our faith. Our victory is dying for our faith. And you're going to see how the saints who died in Christ end up ruling the earth in this book. Because those that died in Christ, martyred, end up ruling with Christ for a thousand years. So, well... I had to skip some things. We didn't look at the lion, the root, the lamb, 
there are some references here for you to look up where the, the image of him being the Lion of Judah, the Root of David, and the Lamb of God come from. But again, you can look those up. Um, next week, next week uh, we will, I forget which chapter we get through, but same amount of text. And I'll try to start on time and not, we won't do as much introductory remarks. We'll just be able to get right into the, into the mix. Let's thank God. Dear Lord, we're very grateful. We're blessed in looking at your word, even when we don't know what we're dealing with. But direct us to the things that we can know. In your son's name, amen.